You are listening to the Sermons Podcast of First Baptist Church, Mount Washington. Well, I invite you to turn in your Bibles to Romans chapter 7. If you didn't bring a Bible, there's maybe one in the pew in front of you. I encourage you to turn there. As you're turning there, just a couple of uh, brief announcements. This afternoon is our church picnic at 3.30 uh, to 7 at Cedar Ridge Park. There should be some information in your bulletin and also some directions. If you don't know where that's at, you should find uh, directions over, over here at the Welcome Center when you came in. Looking forward to a wonderful afternoon. They're frying some fish and uh, grilling some hot dogs and all kinds of activities. I hope that you'll plan to join us. Also want to remind you this morning that uh, this is the last Sunday for deacon nominations. If you haven't gotten those in, please uh, try to get those in today. Uh, it's an important time and an important uh, part in the life of our church, so I want to encourage you to do that. Service is a little uh, different today because we'll be... Uh, taking part in the Lord's Supper here in just a few moments. So we're going to go ahead and, and uh, turn our attention to Romans 7 uh, this morning. Romans 7 is uh, really one of the uh, best-known chapters in Romans. You uh, might remember the part at least beginning around verse 13 or so uh, where Paul talks about how he doesn't uh, do what he wants to do and the struggle that takes place uh, in his life. There's a lot of debate about what all that means, and we'll be talking about that uh, soon. Uh, but the theme is an important one uh, because uh, of our fight with sin as believers and our desire to be free from sin and uh, to have victory over it. And so I think that's why this chapter is ultimately important. And uh, so we're looking at verses 1 through 6 this morning. There are several difficulties uh, and, uh, in this chapter. We'll try to keep them as simple and understandable as possible. Uh, but let's read it and then ask for the Lord's help. Romans 7, beginning in verse 1. Do you not know, brothers, for I'm speaking to those who know the law, that the law is binding on a person only as long as he lives for a married woman is bound by law to her husband while he lives, but if her husband dies, she is released from the law of marriage. Accordingly, she will be called an adulteress if she lives with another man while her husband is alive. But if her husband dies, she is free from that law, and if she marries another man, she is not an adulteress. Likewise, my brothers, you also have died to the law, through the body of Christ, so that you may belong to another, to him who's been raised from the dead, in order that we may bear fruit for God. For while we were living in the flesh, our sinful passions aroused by the law were at work in our members to bear fruit for death. But now we are released from the law, having died to that which held us captive so that we serve in the new way of the Spirit and not in the old way of the written code. Let's ask for the Lord's help. God, thank you so much for the strength, the blessing of being able to be here and gather with your people today and, and to open up your word. 
Um, we pray that you would help us, Lord, by your Spirit to understand these things, that you would uh, carefully apply them, impress them, inscribe them on our hearts, uh, that you would do your work in us through it. And uh, we pray uh, today, I pray that you would use me as your servant. I pray that you would increase and I would decrease and your word would go forth. And I pray it in Jesus' name, amen. What is the place of the Old Testament law in Christian discipleship? Now, I seriously doubt um, you were concerned about that question as you came to church this morning. Uh, probably wasn't on your mind and heart and, uh, and so forth, but it was very much on the hearts and minds of Paul's audience, particularly his Jewish audience. Uh, what's the place of the Old Testament law in my life now that Christ has come in to me? Uh, so I'm sure you haven't thought about it in those terms, but I, I know that you've thought about it in these terms as, as you've thought about your struggle with sin, uh, how destructive it is in your life, how you long to be free from that sin. Perhaps you've wondered even why you continue to struggle so much in it, maybe even more so now since you've become a Christian. Why do you struggle with sin so much? You wonder if you'll ever have victory over it, uh, when and how. Now, in chapter 6, Paul has been talking about this very subject. He's been talking about the tyranny of sin. That in the moment of our salvation, when we came to Christ, we died to sin. We died to the tyranny of sin over us. But sin did not die in us. It is why we still are tempted today. That's why there's still some battle. Though we are new creations in Christ, the old man has passed, Paul says. We still live in these bodies. And as long as we live in these bodies, we're going to wrestle with sin, even though it no longer has dominion over us. And you remember in that discussion at one point, if you look back at chapter 6, verses 14 and 15, Paul writes, for sin will have no dominion over you, since you are not under law, but under grace. What then, he says, are we to sin because we're not under law, but under grace? By no means. It's that phrase that we're not under law, but under grace is why Paul wrote chapter 7. Of Romans. He is answering that question. What does he mean? He feels he needs to explain what he means by the fact that we're no longer under the law. What does that have to do with our struggle with sin? Now, just to keep all of this in context, bear with us for just a moment, but Paul has already told us in chapter 3, verses 19 and 20, that the law cannot justify or save a person before God. Uh, the, the fact is that the law of God condemns us before God because it reveals God's standard of holiness and righteous living to us, and we have all fallen short of the glory of God. We've all fallen short of God's law. Amen? And our only hope, he says in Romans 3, is a righteousness that comes outside of the law. It comes outside of your good works. 
He makes it very plain, Romans 3, 21, he says, but now the righteousness of God, that's what we need, salvation, the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. The righteousness of God, how does it come to us? Through faith, he says, in Jesus Christ for all who believe. We are justified by His grace. So, in other words, when it comes to our salvation, we are not under law, we are under grace. We're saved by grace, not by good works, not by following the law. No one can follow the law enough to, to be saved. No one can do enough good works and be saved. It's only by grace through faith in Jesus. So what about our struggle with sin now that we're Christians? What about the sanctification part of our salvation, our desire, our pursuit to grow, to be more like Christ and to lay, leave our sins behind? Now, Paul says the same thing in Romans 6, 14. He says we are not under law. We're not under law. In other words, the law cannot save us. We know that. Now he's saying to us this law cannot sanctify us. It doesn't have that kind of power. It cannot provide the righteousness that we need. And, and so this needs some explaining, and that's why he's written chapter 7. If you just scan the chapter for a moment, you'll see that the law is mentioned. Uh, I'm, I may be off a counting or two because he uses some different phrases before, but somewhere like 35 times. In fact, the word law itself, I think, is mentioned in every single verse, the first 14 verses. Over and over again, this is what he is addressing. Our, fo our focus this morning, though, is on verses 1 through 6. I want you to notice three things about it. The principle that he teaches, an illustration of that principle, and then an application. Okay? Simple enough. Principle, illustration, application. Um, the first thing that he mentions is the principle. And here's the principle. The Christian has died to the law. The Christian has died to the law. Verse 1, do you not know, brothers? For I'm speaking to those who know the law, that the law is binding on a person only as long as he lives. And if you look at verse 4, he makes that even more clear. He says what he's saying. Likewise, my brother, you also have died to the law. Now, if you look back at chapter 6 and think about what he's just said, there's lots of parallels here. Um, once again, we know this phrase. It's familiar to us because Paul's already mentioned it. Do you not know? Right? This is something you ought to know, he's telling the Christians at Romans uh, in Rome. Do, do you not understand what has happened to you? This is a fundamental truth. In chapter 6, verse 2, he says, we have died to sin. In chapter 7, verse 4, he says, we have died to the law. In chapter 6, verse 7, he says, we've been set free from the tyranny of sin over us. In chapter 7, verse 6, he's saying, we have been released from the law. We've been set free from the tyranny of the law. In chapter 6, verses 3 and through 5, he told us that we have been raised with Jesus Christ. In chapter 7, verse 4, he says, we who belong to him, uh, we, we now belong to him who was raised from the dead. So there's lots of parallels from this. And there's positive aspects to the law, and we'll talk about those next week. But Paul first wants us to understand this huge thing that has happened to us in salvation. 
We had to be released from the law. In order for us not to be considered lawbreakers before God and suffer the rightful condemnation of that, we had to be released from this law. We had to be set free from it in some way, set free from, uh, from the tyranny of it, released from this. And the only way one can be released from the law was to die. That's his point, to die. It's not a profound truth. It's really just kind of a self-evident truth if you, if you think about it. The authority of the law, of any law, only applies to those who are living, right? Um, when a when, a, when an alcoholic wrecks his car and dies in the process, you don't see the police officer standing over the one who has died, writing him a ticket. It, it's just, at that point, there's no, it doesn't make any sense to do that. Um, when uh, Lee Harvey Oswald shot uh, President John F. Kennedy, and then he himself was assassinated outside of the courtroom, his trial didn't continue. At that point, he's in the court of God, but from a human perspective, the law's jurisdiction is over the living, right? That makes sense. Uh, you, you cannot require a dead person to do anything. So Paul wants us to understand that what happened to you and me, when we came to Christ, when we became Christians, uh, we died. The old man died, and with it, sin's tyranny died, and with it, the law's tyranny died over us. So here's the, that's the principle. So now he gives an illustration of that truth. And uh, the illustration is simply uh, maybe explained like this. Death breaks one relationship and enables, enables the start of another. Death breaks one relationship and enables the start of the other. In other words, we must die to one in order to be free for the other. Paul illustrates it, verse 2. For a married woman is bound by law to her husband while he lives. But if her husband dies, she's released from the law of marriage. Accordingly, she'll be called an adulteress if she lives with another man while her husband is alive. But if her husband dies, she's free from that law. And if she marries another man, she is not an adulteress. So there's a lot of debate about what Paul is trying to get at here, and, and I think uh, there's obviously lots of thoughts about it, but I think the temptation here is to get more out of what Paul is saying in these verses than what he intends. This is not a definitive statement on marriage. There's other things on marriage, divorce, and remarriage. There's other places in Scripture that we look to. And I don't think Paul is trying to say everything that, that, it, that needs to be said or taught here about this. I think at one level, the, the illust, this is an illustration that is meant to illustrate one point. And, and the one point is that the law of marriage applies only as long as both spouses are living. That, that's his point. Um, the death of the husband releases the wife from the law that bound her to the marriage. Death frees her from the obligations of the law. When he dies, she can remarry. She can enter into a new relationship. I think that is the illustration. That's the point that Paul is trying to illustrate from, uh, from, from, this, uh, from this passage. Now, some have tried to make this into more, and I think that's where we get into trouble. Some tried to make this into an allegory uh, where maybe uh, the woman represents 
uh, one thing and the husband represents the law and, and, you know, he's trying. I don't think that's what Paul is doing here. That's not the way Paul usually writes. That's not typical of him. Um, and it doesn't make sense if you start to do that. You run into all kinds of, of troubles. In chapter 6, you remember that we died to sin, but sin did not die in us, right? And there's a difference in that. The law doesn't die either. We died to the law. The law doesn't, doesn't die, you see. And, and so what Paul is saying is that we died to the law. His point is that, that death releases a person from the obligations of the law so that you can enter into a new relationship. Everybody understand that? Say amen. amen. That's making it simple. Now, we could spend all kinds of time the rest of the afternoon debating all the intricacies involved in that, and I don't think it would be helpful to us today. But, but I want you to see how this is working out. Paul's critics were saying to him, okay, this wonderful gospel that you've been preaching, Paul, but what about the law? Doesn't the gospel that you've been preaching annul the law? Doesn't it set aside the law? That which was so important, God's law in the Old Testament? You, you mean we're just doing away with that? Paul's answer is by no means, right? By no means, in this good news of the gospel, sinners are justified or saved apart from the law. But at the same time, the law is fully honored. It's fully satisfied. It's not been set aside. How is that? It is because Jesus Christ kept the law perfectly throughout his life for us. Not one time did he break any of God's laws. Isn't that a glorious truth? And I tell you, that is our only hope for salvation. Not your good works, but His good work for you. He fulfilled it. He lived it. He honored it. Fully satisfied it. He obeyed it for us. And then at the same time, in His death, in Jesus' death, we all died. And in that moment, we were released from the penalty of the law. Doesn't apply in that sense anymore. We're no longer bound to it, Paul says. In salvation, the law of God is fulfilled. That is wonderful news for us today. We're no longer under it. It's died. We have died to it, rather, in Christ. And so here's the application. Well, this is moving along fast. Here's the application. We are no longer married to the law, but we are married, you can guess, to Christ, aren't we? Notice what he says, verse 4, Likewise, my brothers, you also have died to the law through the body of Christ. Not talking about the church there, but about Christ's death, His sacrificial death for us through the body of Christ so that you may belong to another. Who are we to belong to? To Him who has been raised from the dead in order that we may bear fruit for God. The, this death had to occur, Paul says, so that we could belong to another. This belonging word is, is, a, is marriage terminology. It's the same terminology he's been using 
so that we would belong to Christ, so that we would become his bride. If you think about it, marriage is one of the, the, the best illustrations of what it looks like to belong to Jesus in salvation. It's a, it's a beautiful metaphor, beautiful picture of, of that. Paul has already been developing this kind of in his thought. We've been talking about being in union with Christ all the way back since chapter 5, verse 12. He started to talk about here. Only here he pictures it as a marital union. Before we came to Christ, we were, we were in union with Adam. We, we were under the authority of Adam and all that belonged to Adam, his sin, his death, the judgment, sin reigned in our lives, death reigned over us, but then by God's grace, chapter 6, verse 6, we know that our old self was crucified with Christ in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to Adam. If we apply some of the language of what Paul's saying in chapter 7 to here, we were married to Adam. We were united to Adam. We belonged to Adam. We were under the dominion of death and sin and the wrath of God, under the curse of the law, rightly deserving all of the consequences that come with it. But now, because of grace, through faith, we have been united with Christ. The old marriage, to use that terminology with Adam and the law, has been severed. We've been set free to marry another. Jesus Christ, the old has gone, the new has come. And this happened, he says, in order that we may bear fruit for God. Verse 5 and 6, for while we were living in the flesh, that is when we were lost, our sinful passions aroused by the law were at work in our members to bear fruit for death. But now we are released from the law. We're released from it, having died to that which held us captive so that we serve in the new way of the Spirit and not in the old way of the written code. We were saved to bear fruit, he says. It's as if Paul, again, is reminding us, and here's where I think this bears down, at least it's it's kind of weighed down on my heart this week as I've studied this. It's if, if Paul is saying to us today, he's reminding us, don't you remember back when you were married to Adam? Don't you remember? Picture your life. Picture your walk with Christ in, in this way. Picture it, your lostness. Do you remember feeling the burden of being lost? Do you remember feeling the burden of the law of God crushing you, never being able to measure up, never being able to feel like you're doing enough to earn God's ways if that were the path, but feeling that burden over and over again. Sinclair Ferguson invites us to picture a marriage in which the woman discovers that instead of Prince Charming, she's married, she's married a demon of a man. And instead of entering into the joys and the freedom of marriage and all of its blessings, she finds herself in this horrible marriage. She is 
dominated. She's crushed. She's criticized for everything that she does. She messes up. There's condemnation. There's guilt. There's shame. The harder she tries, the more she's beaten down day after day, week after week, year after year. She cries out to God, perhaps even with the words of Paul at the end of this chapter, who will deliver me from this body of death? This is a picture of what belonging to Adam is like. You have the law of Moses condemning you at every turn. Even exposing more and more of your sin. And without mercy, you can never live up enough to it. You can never save yourself. It's, it's this terrible, crushing situation, an impossible situation. But then, all of a sudden, one day the woman's husband dies. And she's free. And in the meantime, there's a gentle, gracious man who's been watching all of this. And this gracious man pursues this woman with love and mercy that she's never known. And she, in fact, struggles to believe it. Can this be true, that there's this kind of grace and forgiveness? And she still occasionally has nightmares about the other. She can hardly believe that there's someone who could love her like this, and then one day he asked her to marry him. And in fear and trembling, she's, she says, yes. And it comes down to walking that aisle and her lip is trembling behind the veil. She's tears pouring down her face as she comes forward. She feels the crushing weight of all of those past years. She then sees the man, the gracious man, who's loved her standing there, ready to give himself to her. Do you understand, Christian, this is what's happened to you and me? You see the beautiful picture of, of this? That once again, we were bound in this marriage to Adam. We were in sin and death and judgment and hopelessness. And now our, he has died and our Savior has come, Jesus Christ. And now we belong to him. He sought us long before we knew him. He said, I, Jesus, take you, sinner, that's us, to be my wedded wife. I promise and covenant before God the Father to be your loving and faithful Savior in plenty and in want, in joy and in sorrow, in sickness and in health, for this life and for all eternity. And in that moment, we responded, I, sinner, take you, Jesus.
to be my loving Savior. And I promise and covenant before God the Father to be your loving and faithful wife, also in plenty and want, in joy and sorrow and sickness and in health and for this life and for all eternity. This is what happened to us, Christian. This is this beautiful picture. You belong to Jesus Christ. Yes, there'll be nightmares to come that will remind you of the old, and they do come, Christian, right? Amen? Those of you who follow Jesus, you know that they do. There'll be times even in this new marriage when, when you will fail. And, and your failure will be revealed, and it will even seem more crushing than it did before because you are married to such a loving and faithful Savior. But the reality is you belong to Him now. The old has gone. The new has come. You are no longer under the condemnation of the law. Paul will even say in chapter 8, verse 1, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. None. Don't you see this is what Paul is saying? Think back in, at chapter 6, and you remember the question, should we go on sinning because we are in this grace. What do you mean? How can we go on sinning? We belong to Jesus Christ. Don't you see what's happened to you? you you're, you've been released from the bonds of Adam and the law and sin and death. You belong to this loving, faithful Lord Jesus who has died and was raised from the dead. How could you go back? Why would you want to go back? And here in chapter 7, does this mean that I can live any way that I want to live, that God's law means nothing to me? What do you mean by asking that? Do you not know that your Savior has completely taken care of fulfilling all of the law for you? You belong to him. You also have died to the law, he says, in order that we may bear fruit for God. Belonging to this loving Savior does not lead to more lawlessness in your life. It leads to holiness and a desire to be holy. We've been released from the law, verse 6, he says, having died to that which held us captive so that we serve in the new way of the Spirit and not in the old way of the written code. This new marriage, this new relationship leads to holiness. The law of God cannot produce that in you, but God's Spirit living in you can. John Stott put it so eloquently, we serve not because the law is our master and we have to, but because Christ is our husband and we want to. Not because it leads to salvation. Not because it leads to salvation, but because salvation leads to obedience. We want to. We've been changed. And your struggle against sin, perhaps some of you are allowing God's law to beat you down this morning. There's always this tendency in this to look back to our old husband, to the law, 
the old world that Jesus delivered you from. Here's what I think Paul is saying today. Fix your eyes on Jesus, your new husband, church. Fix your gaze on him. Quit looking backward. Quit trying to have one foot in the world and another. No, fix your eyes on Jesus. You belong to him after all. Turn from your sins and fix your eyes on your Savior, Jesus Christ. Maybe those who are here today who have never come to Christ The invitation for you, perhaps, today is, will you have this man to be your Lord and Savior? It's not enough merely to know about Jesus. And it's not merely enough to love Jesus. Saving faith is a promise, a commitment. I take you, Jesus. Here's my life. Will you turn from your sins today, recognizing what he's done for you? Will you receive him into your life today? Lord, thank you for this beautiful picture in your word. And I know I've only scratched the surface, but I pray, Lord, that by your spirit you would write these things on our hearts. Give us understanding. We would recognize the radical thing that you've done for us. And that we would continue to give ourselves to you, our perfect Savior, our loving bridegroom. And for those who don't know him today, I pray that you would make that clear in their own hearts and, and, and minds and that they might turn from their, their sin and put their trust in Jesus as their Lord and Savior. We give this time to worship and response for you in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand together. Thanks for listening to this podcast. I'm Pastor Jason Clark, and if you don't have a church home, I want to personally invite you to First Baptist Mount Washington. We're striving to be word-centered, gospel-focused, and community-minded. Learn more about our church and our meeting times from our website, fbcmw.org.